Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is March 6, 2014, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Relax, Don't Do It, Top 5 Lists for Emergency Medicine. And today on the SGEM, we don't have one, we don't have two, we have three. Yes, count them, three guest skeptics on the podcast. The first guest skeptic is Dr. Jeremiah Schur, but I think you go by Jay. Can you say hello, Jay, and tell us a little bit about yourself, where you work? Hi, Ken. Uh, I'm an emergency physician. I work in Boston at Brigham and Women's Hospital, uh, where I also work on uh, quality and safety. Isn't that at Harvard? That is at Harvard. I, I just wanted to get a Boston accent on there. Okay, and so we also have uh, Ali Raja. You also work in Harvard, don't you, Ali? <laughs> Ken, that's exactly right. I do. Thanks for having uh, both me and uh, Jay on. I'm glad you're willing to put up with a couple of Harvard guys. The next, uh, the next skeptic is a former Harvard guy, so he uh, he's learned his lessons and moved on. Oh, he moved on, did he? Well, th this is Dr. Arjen Venkatesh, and uh, RJ, why don't you say hello? Hi, Ken. Thank you. I um, I'm now at an institution that is not nearly as famous as Harvard, but hopefully as well-known as Yale. And I'm uh, here as part of the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program and doing a lot of research around quality measurement. Well, it's great to have you uh, three uh, skeptics on the program today. Uh, each week, uh, people listening to the program know that I like to put my skeptical eye on a recent publication. And this is an attempt to cut that knowledge translation window down from an average of 10 years to one year. And I use the best evidence in emergency medicine or BEAM critical appraisal tools, which are now available online for free for everyone to use, to do a critical appraisal of a paper. However, every so often I like to take a break from the usual format, take a step back and discuss a larger issue, sort through the forest and the trees, and talk about an important emergency medicine topic. And we've done this before on a number of occasions. We did it when we discussed Choose Wisely on number 15, the SGM number 20 was, of course, hit me with your best shot, talking about mandatory flu shots for healthcare workers. And then we had We Are Young, talking about social media and medical education. And then that great guy, Jeremy Faust, talked about the five stages of evidence-based medicine grief. And then the most recent one we've done is Beam Me Up, Impact Factor in the Age of Social Media. Well, today, we have another great issue to discuss on the SGEM. And what's even better is that we have the three co-authors of the JAMA paper we're going to discuss. It is hot off the press, and you get to hear it directly from the guys who did the study. I think this really demonstrates the power of social media for knowledge translation. So who better to introduce the actual title of the paper we're going to be discussing than the lead author himself? Jay, can you introduce the paper? Sure, Ken. Our paper is uh, a top five list for emergency medicine, a pilot project to improve the value of emergency care. And you guys probably didn't know that five is my favorite number because I can count it on one hand. 
let's uh, let's figure out why you actually did this study in the first place. What led you to de- develop a, a you know a top five list of emergency medicine? Well, it's funny thinking back on it now because uh, with the Choosing Wisely campaign that I think we're going to discuss, most people have probably heard about top five lists. I remember a friend uh, forwarded on an article that was in the New England Journal of Medicine, a perspective piece uh, back in January 2010 from Howard Brody. He's a uh, doctor and a bioethicist uh, in Texas. And at the time, there was a big debate about healthcare reform in the United States. And his article made the point that all of the major stakeholders in healthcare were coming forward and offering to give up something as part of the effort to expand coverage. While you can debate the uh, how much they were willing to give up, uh, hospitals, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies all sort of came forward and uh, said that they would, they would uh, give, give something up. And the uh, article pointed out that the one major stakeholder that had not done that was uh, providers, particularly physicians. And so his proposal was the top five list. And he said that each society uh, should come forward with a list of five uh, tests or treatments uh, or uh, procedures that they uh, do uh, and that they really have control over and uh, identify the clear reasons for which they're inappropriate and work to not do them. And that was something that would be within our control and also would um, improve the value of care um, and sort of be something that that we would give up. Um, And I found that to be a very uh, appealing idea. I think, you know, as a practicing emergency physician from when I was a resident onward, uh, I would observe care that I knew didn't add very much value. And, you know, as a resident, it was often the attending uh, who was asking uh, me to order it or the consultant as an attending, uh, I'm sure I'm guilty of it also, and uh, sometimes it's uh, just uh, tradition, uh, sometimes it's local practice pattern, sometimes it's uh, consultants, sometimes it's uh, my misapplication of the evidence. Uh, but I thought uh, trying to get physicians to focus on uh, what we could control was worthwhile. So, so that's what originally uh, interested me in the idea, and Arjun uh, was one of our residents at the time, and we talked about this a fair amount, and when a second article came out in in the uh, archives of internal medicine that created a top five list for primary care, uh, we sort of said we really need to do this for emergency medicine. And so, working with the emergency partners at par- uh, emergency departments at Partners Healthcare, which is a health system in Eastern Massachusetts, we uh, worked with uh, all of the emergency departments to to do this project. And and my understanding from reading your paper was that there was a significant rise in cost from the emergency department directly over the last uh, few years. Wasn't that a big driver of this? Over the last eight years, there was some astronomical rise in how much emergency medicine care was costing? So that's a, you know, that's a big area of debate, exactly how much the cost of emergency care has risen, but it clearly has risen. number that's tossed around is a 240% uh, rise from 2003 to 2011. That comes from a study that the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality does, and that's the uh, cost of an emergency department visit has risen that much. So which one of you smart guys want to tell me what the objective of the study was? Sure. So I think that, you know, at the time, as Jay said, that there was a lot of momentum institutionally to improve the affordability of care. And it being Harvard, it would be impossible to approach a project without thinking about how we could do it in a structured researched way that would be publishable. And so I think that the other thing to remember is that a lot of this is timing. And so while there was timing institutionally around interest for this, 
there was a lot of forces that also made this a topic of interest nationally and gave this momentum. You know, the cost of healthcare has been going up not just last year, not just in the last decade, but for many years. And there's been a lot of calls to reduce the cost of care. When we first started this project and did a little literature review, there's actually a paper back in JAMA in 1980 looking at the cost of emergency care and opportunities to reduce it. I think the difference this time around was that there was a whole national call to start looking at this issue, not just because it's expensive, but because it was you know, driving down wages for folks across America, and it was bankrupting companies and bankrupting individuals. And so there was this kind of general acceptance that this was an important issue. And so with that kind of background, you had the leadership of partners, which is this larger health system, um, committed to finding ways to make care more affordable. And then the leaders within each department, in this case, emergency medicine, said, well, how can we thoughtfully do this? And so the objective of, that we wanted to do, and after we'd seen these lists from the folks in pediatrics and primary care, was to figure out what those five things we could do would be to reduce cost, but to do them in a way that they would really be actionable. And I think one of the things that we saw was that it was you know, easy to come up with a list of things that frustrated you or working clinically or like, oh, why do we need to do that? Or that test never is of any use or that just seemed expensive and costly and wasteful. But to actually be more thematic about it and say, what are ones, what are things that create that same emotion, but do so broadly across a variety of providers where we can all agree as a group with consensus that this is potentially a low value service that could be reduced and something that we can actually do something about. And so the objective when we got to this was to say, how are we going to get from this, you know, potential list of a hundred odd ideas you could think of to five meaningful goals that everybody can agree on? And that's how really how we structured this whole project as kind of a modified Delphi process was that we recognized that the hardest task here was going to be to find five things that we could get everybody to agree about. Okay, so that was the objective to generate this list of five things that were sort of in your control that you could do something about that had little value to the emergency department and to the emergency patients that you're serving. And then you alluded to something called the modified Delphi process. So could someone give us uh, discuss that whole process and tell us about the methods that you used? Sure. I think we used the word modified here. Uh, importantly, because a Delphi process is something that's been very formally defined. It's very resource intensive. And you'll see this term modified Delphi process in the literature quite often. And I think really the way to think about that is that it's just a structured way to assess opinions of groups, make it through a decision process that allows you to narrow some of your options. And so what we did is we started right at the front line. We went out to all the residents, the PAs, the attending physicians, and we asked them for things that would be potentially reducible and services that were really low value. And we came up initially with a list of 64 different items that people had kind of suggested to us. So Arjun, yeah. just to interrupt there. So you, you approached, uh, I think it was 283 emergency clinicians that included physicians and residents, but also included physicians assistants and nurse practitioners. So you were very inclusive when you set out on the project. And I think that's really important to make sure that the end user has some ownership so that they can generate that list and then feel responsible for it and then implement it. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is a system where of the 
you know, five hospitals that are part of this, two of these are big academic teaching centers where the vast majority of the orders for the types of tests and treatments we're talking about are put in by residents and PAs. And so to not ask them what they thought was low value would have completely missed on this dimension of what's actionable and not not actionable at the end of the list. I think that's really important because it makes it even more of a sort of a grassroots movement, doesn't it? Because you're talking to those frontline people. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the challenge, though, with that is that you also need to combine that with some expertise. And I know, you know, Ali is a member of our TAP, I'm sure has a lot of interesting perspectives on this. But what we did is to balance all this grassroots kind of ideas that we'd gotten out there, we put together a technical expert panel that really involved, you know, myself as, at the time as a resident, a quality chief from each hospital, and then experts in the kind of areas of uh, service use we thought we'd be targeting, imaging, hospital admission, and by having that technical expert panel, you were able to kind of combine knowledge about, you know, how much these things might cost and how often we're ordering these tests, as well as with the scientific evidence that may or may not support certain practices with the idea of what people think is actionable on the front line. And so that was a kind of a balance that through this process, we were going back and forth between, you know, our near 300 clinicians and this 10 member technical expert panel in terms of coming, whittling it down to a list of five at the end. So I think there was a four-step process that you put in your paper or four phases that you went through. And you, you, you talked about that technical expert panel and then checking with those 300 or so uh, frontline clinicians. Can you walk us through the, the other phases so people could understand how you did this? How did you whittle it down to five? Sure. So phase one was reaching out to everybody and asking them for ideas. And when we did that, we got 64 ideas back. And then phase two said, let's take our technical expert panel and have them rank each of these ideas based on how beneficial or harmful they are to patients. And that's kind of based on how good the scientific evidence is, how actionable they are. You know, could emergency clinicians really reduce these low value services? And then kind of a general gestalt or feel around how much does this cost? Is this something that's done quite often? And is it something that's pretty expensive? And we didn't use actual cost data. We did, you know, periodically try to give people things from the literature or data around how much the utilization was, but we actually did this without looking at the specific cost of each service. And just by doing that, that, te uh, that technical panel rated all those items, all 64 items, and then had a couple group discussions around it and was able to narrow it down to 17 items. That got you to phase three then? Right. And so then in phase three, we took those 17 items and sent them out in a survey to all 283 clinicians across the system and asked them to rate it again on those same dimensions. You know, was this beneficial or harmful to patients based on evidence? So did they really think that they're how um, really, you know, pushing them on some of the same kinds of things you guys do with the beam? And then as well as how actionable they thought it was. We didn't ask them about cost because we really wanted to really focus on these two domains. And they came back to us with a variety of ratings. And then so what we did in phase four is we had that same technical expert panel look at what frontline clinicians had told them in terms of benefit of these services and how actionable they were. And then went through another voting process within that technical expert panel to go from those 17 items down to the last five. Okay, and that's what everybody's been waiting for. They're like, come on, guys, get to the point. So, Ali, you're going to take us through that top five list, one to five. And I understand you have a special area of interest because you have a cross-appointment between radiology and emergency medicine. Can you tell us more about that? 
Oh, absolutely. But I'll, I'll keep it short because I know you want to get to the list and your listeners want to get to the list. I've, I've got a dual appointment in both, both departments here at the Brigham, but I'm an emergency physician and my focus is really on the appropriate use of imaging. Um, and I think that in a process like this, if you have somebody like me involved whose interest is really in imaging, you would be tempted to have a lot of imaging tests as your results of your top five. Now, it just so happens that we do, but we did it in such a way, and Arjun and Jay did a fantastic job of making everything very transparent and open. And all the scores from the modified Delphi process, which is, you know, is an, an iterative, iterative process where everybody knows along the way how the scores are doing for each of the measures. Everybody was quite open and honest and sure that it wasn't just me wanting things to go my way and have imaging tests, but these were what everybody felt together. So I think so, we've teased people long enough, don't you, Ali? I, I feel like I'm, a, I'm an intern calling a consultant and saving the, the meat of the story for the very end of the call. But uh, so number one on the list of top five tests that we think that we should not be doing as many of is do not order computed tomography of the cervical spine for patients after trauma who do not meet the nexus, low, uh, the nexus uh, rules or the Canadian C-spine rules. So I'll include um, a link in the blog so I can remind everyone what the nexus criteria are and what the Canadian C-spine. And by the way, guys, I call them clinical decision instruments, not rules. Oh, that's, you know, that's uh, to each his own. We will, we can call them anything you want. This is your podcast. Well, Ken. rules are made to be so, broken and, and they're just sort of like, oh, could you just call them like aids or tools or instruments? Why do they have to be rules? Absolutely. Uh, number two, do not order CT to diagnose pulmonary embolism without first risk stratifying for PE with some sort of probability and or D-dimer if low probability. So what you're talking about is something like a a Wells criteria. So going through the Wells criteria and scoring people low, medium, and high and, and stratifying them on that probability and then and then getting that Jeff Klein perk rule in there for those low probability PEs. Ken, you're absolutely right. You could also use the Geneva or the modified Geneva criteria, or you could even use clinical gestalt, which has never been shown to be any worse than any of the rule or any of the instruments that you just mentioned. Ah, see, I'm converting you. <laughs> what is number three? Number three is do not order magnetic resonance imaging of the lumbar spine for patients with lower back pain without high risk features. So what are some of those high risk features or what are those red flags that uh, would, uh, you know, trigger an MRI? So, you know, a lot of it has to do with the use of conservative management first. And a lot of it has to do with whether or not it's acute or chronic and whether or not there are neurologic deficits. And we can actually send you a link to the American College of Physicians guidelines along the imaging of low back pain uh, with MRI that delineate all of those in depth. Ali, what's the fourth rule on this list of five? Number four is do not order CT of the head for patients with mild traumatic head injury who do not meet the New Orleans criteria or the Canadian CT head rule, which is a rule, even though it's a decision instrument. Thank you. Did you notice, Ali, that two out of the four that we've discussed so far came out of Dr. Ian Steele's work in Ottawa? And he was the guy that we talked about last week with the Swami about ACLS drugs in out-of-hospital cardiac arrests and the OPALS trial. That was with a classic paper we actually critically reviewed last week. I find that kind of interesting. 
You know, that's interesting, but I, uh, I also wanted to point out that it's actually been three because George Wells of the Wells Criteria um, also used to be with Ian Steele's group back when they made those criteria. They are just a research factory there in Ottawa. You, you know what I find interesting is that the United States won 28 medals in Sochi <laughs> at 25. You know, the only medal that counted was the Olympic men's hockey game and the Olympic women's hockey game. <laughs> this could go on for a while, but I'm going to read number five. Do not order coagulation studies for patients without hemorrhage or suspected coagulopathy. Um, examples like anticoagulation therapy or clinical coagulopathies. Well, thanks for running through those five, uh, uh, the top five lists there that you guys generated from the research project. Usually what we do is we get, we get the quote of the author's conclusions. And so I'm going to ask Jay, before we discuss the paper, I'm going to ask Jay, could you actually give us the quote as the lead author of your conclusions? Sure. Our technical expert panel identified clinical actions that are of low value and within the control of ED healthcare providers. This method can be used to identify additional actionable targets of overuse in emergency medicine. All right, thanks. So let's jump in and talk about some of the uh, paper's highlights and some of the limitations. Who wants to start? I'd be happy to start, comment a couple highlights. The first is uh, that I think our technique is not uh, particularly difficult to do, and it's reproducible. I think you mentioned you've uh, done something similar at your hospital. And there is a real value of doing this exercise in the sense that if you generate your own list, uh, you've got uh, buy-in and uh, local application. The second table in our study shows uh, the survey scores um, and how uh, items are ranked out by different clinician types, by clinicians' experience, by the ED setting. Uh, what's impressive is that the majority of them, of the rankings, are pretty similar, if not identical. Uh, there are very few items where you know community hospital ranks something uh, very highly and the academic hospital didn't. The second thing I think is sort of interesting is the examples where there was a real difference. And so one or two uh, pop out. One that uh, pops out in a couple of ways is uh, chest pain. We uh, saw a real difference among two of the items around chest pain. For example, healthcare clinicians at community hospital EDs scored not admitting patients with low-risk chest pain much less favorably than did academic clinicians. Academic clinicians ranked that as number four. Uh, community clinicians ranked it lowest, number 17 out of 17. We didn't get a chance to sort of go into why that is, but we think that chest pain is a leading cause of hospitalization, so it deserves further investigation, but it's also a leading cause of medical legal risk in the United States, uh, and that may have been one of the reasons why it was uh, ranked differently in different settings. Third takeaway is that we did this project starting in uh, 2011 and uh, completed it in 2012, um, the American College of Emergency Physicians decided to join the Choosing Wisely campaign uh, in uh, 2013, and I had the uh, privilege to co-chair the committee that uh, came up with the uh, ASAP uh, uh, top five. Um, and we did a similar process. We assembled a different technical expert panel. We had a big survey of the ASAP membership, um, and we ultimately came up with a list. And if you, if your readers look at the two lists, there are differences between the items. And show, so it shows that this is a process that is really locally, uh, locally driven. And I think that's a good point because, you know, first of all, you, you started this process 
before the Choose Wisely campaign got underway. And then when it did get underway and ASAP joined in October 2013, they did generate a different list because they had a different expert panel and a slightly different process. You did mention that we, and that means at my hospital, South Huron Hospital, known as the little hospital that does, choose wisely in this case, our medical staff got together and generated our own list of things that we could think of that were five things that we could choose wisely about to improve patient care based on the evidence. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll throw up ASAP's list and I'll throw up South Huron's list and we'll see if uh, anybody else can generate their own list. So any more comments on the paper itself, maybe some limitations that you thought it had? I think there are a couple limitations. Um, uh, the first has, has been mentioned. This is really work out of a single healthcare system. Uh, we have uh, six emergency departments, uh, two academic and uh, four community, but we all of them are really in the metro uh, Boston area. And so this really would not represent uh, rural emergency medicine uh, well. Uh, secondly, I think the um, uh, panel didn't have uh, cost data. And the third is that as this project moved along, uh, we started a couple of affordability projects across the system. Two of those were CT-based projects, one around head CT for mild traumatic head injury, and another was CT for pulmonary embolus. And so in theory, it's possible that that influenced the choice of the expert panel, although we think that uh, the process really asked them to choose uh, independently. So before we move off this uh, great paper you guys put together, I want to bring Ali and Arjun back into this. And Ali, I was wondering if you could uh, discuss your work with the radiology uh, department because you had that cross appointment and how did you get their feedback and support for this project? Because a lot of it did involve imaging. It did. And thanks for pointing it out, Ken. One of the things that, you know, it's not necessarily a limitation of this paper, but maybe unique to some larger institutions is that we have a very, very strong relationship with our Department of Radiology, and we, we collaborate quite a bit. That's obviously a little bit more difficult if you have a private practice radiology group, for example, or if all you have is teleradiology. Um, you don't necessarily have the same partners working with you hospital-wide from the radiology point of view. But because of the fact that we work so well with our radiologists, we're able to move forward on initiatives like this very easily with them. And so that I think is very important if you want to try and make hospital level change is you need somebody that can help you with interdepartmental collaboration as well. You know, I've had a number of friends from around the country talk about the paper that Jay led and that Arjun led that we're talking about today. And one of their biggest issues has really been that they don't think that they can do something like this at their hospital. But I have to say, Ken, given the fact that you've already done uh, something very similar at your hospital, I think that all it really takes is a dedicated group of emergency physicians who are willing to move forward. And you've already shown great examples of that at South Huron. Well, thank you. And, and, you know, it makes a difference if we just work collaboratively because, you know, we don't work in a silo. We don't work in the emergency department and not connected to our EMS, our radiology department, our laboratory, our ICU, our CCU. It's, it's a continuum of care. And we need to work together with all partners in the continuum to make sure that our patients get the best care, because that's why we're there. So Arjun, uh, could you uh, give us some final words? I think you wanted to discuss some stuff on testing, because you're rapidly becoming an expert in this area. 
Sure. You know, I think that when I hear you talk about how obviously this is something that patients are interested in, and I think it's actually something that, you know, it's great to hear about what you're doing in your hospital because it's something emergency cl clinicians are interested in. And when we did this project, I was a chief resident, and I can say one thing that was probably very easy in this project was getting residents engaged. And so I think that speaks to the fact that this next generation of emergency physicians views stewardship and the costs of care and how we have to make sure that we're making valuable decisions in concert with patients as being something really important. And maybe it's because they don't, you know, they're not jaded by the medical legal kind of false concerns that go through, get, that get thrown out there or other things. But it just seems like that next generation of emergency physicians is very engaged in this issue. Because as soon as this paper came out, I've heard from a lot of young emergency physicians, as well as my own residents here at Yale, who are, you know, ready to jump on this kind of stuff and immediately saying, oh, yeah, we don't need to order those COAG studies. Forget that. And so I think that that, that type of momentum is the same kind of grassroots thing that we need to keep growing within emergency medicine. One of the things that's becoming an increasing issue is how can we use some of the ideas in these top five lists to, pack, to actually measure healthcare quality? And are these things that we can actually apply at the national level? So last summer, um, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services here in the U.S. Uh, sent out a request to all the specialty societies saying, hey, would you guys like to turn these choosing wisely lists into actual measures to reduce the cost of care? And there's, you know, a variety of opinions out there, but I think what it speaks to is the fact that there's a lot of interest to think about how we can translate these single sentences that are meant to initially spur a conversation between the clinician and the patient into something that's really measurable. And so that way, clinicians can know whether where they currently stand and whether or not we're actually improving. You know, it's one thing to get the list out there and get some initial conversation about it. But what we really want to see is a world where two, three years down the road from now, we can look back at this and say, wow, you know, we're really not ordering those low value services anymore. And it's had this kind of impact on cost. And I think that that's something where a lot of the quality measure development world is going to go in the next couple of years. So before we leave the paper, why don't we recognize the rest of the authors on this team that you put together, Jay? Thanks. I really want to uh, make sure we thank uh, Drs. Lynn, uh, Ross, and Michael, uh, who all uh, contributed to this, but particularly uh, Dylan Carney. Uh, he's an intern out at UCSF, and when we did the project, he was a third and fourth year medical student at Harvard Medical School. He did a ton of work to bring this together um, and also received a grant from the Emergency Medicine Residents Association. So thanks to uh, Dylan and Emra for their support of this project. Super. I love giving shout outs to medical students and residents because they're the future. Well, let's keep this uh, momentum going then. Jay, Ali, Arjun, I really, really appreciate you being on the SGEM to discuss your recent JAMA paper. And I think what we should do is challenge the SGEM listeners to, again, generate their own list of a top five things that they could do to choose wisely. It is possible. And when they do generate, and I know you will generate your own list, when you do generate your own list, send it to me, thesgem at gmail.com, so I can share it with the rest of the audience as part of the free open access to medical education movement. So we have a keener contest. Uh, and last week's winner was Dr. Leanne Alderman from Alexandria, Virginia. He knew that Dr. Takami was the first person to isolate adrenaline or epinephrine. The question this week was inspired by the methods of today's JAMA article, the modified Delphi method. It made me think of the oracle at Delphi. And this made me think of my son, Ethan, who's going to see 
Oedipus Rex. Now, this play has a famous riddle of the Sphinx. So the keener question this week is, quote, what goes on four feet in the morning, two feet at noon, and three feet in the evening? If you know the answer, then send me an email, the sgem at gmail.com, with keener in the subject line. And if you're the first person to get the answer correct, I will send you a cool skeptical prize. Next week, I'll be teaching at Sweet Beam in Stockholm, Sweden, and I plan to be driving a Volvo, visiting the largest IKEA store in the world, and listening to a lot of ABBA songs. Well, until next week, relax, don't do it, i.e., order so many tests. And Jay, can you give the SGEM tagline? Sure. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine.